Danielle. And I'm Christopher. And we're the Friends Who Feast. And on today's episode, we're having a little celebration. As me and Danielle have talked about before, we are from Southeast Michigan, specifically the Detroit area. And Detroit actually just celebrated its 320th anniversary as a city. So we thought we'd have a little fun and celebrate with some buddies pizza. So if you're not from the area, we'll kind of talk about what that is, but it was a pretty big deal for us. And for today's table talk, we're going to be doing something uh, a little bit different, and we're going to cover a local story, a murder story. I'm a huge fan of true crime, and I'm so excited to talk about that. But let's talk about Buddy's Pizza. For those of you who don't know what Buddy's is, they're known for their original Detroit-style square pizzas. I love a good deep-dish pizza. Me too. I'd actually only been to Buddy's once before we went out this week. I've been a few times, sprinkled out throughout the years, and different locations, so this was a brand new location for me at least. Buddy's currently has a little over 15 locations in Michigan, the majority in southeast Michigan near Detroit. It was founded in 1946 in Detroit and is one of the best pizza chains. actually ranks in the top five by Food Network. That was a little bit surprising to me. I'm sure they kind of covered it in one of their specials, but I I just want to say it's nice to get recognition for something other than a Coney dog. I love a Coney, but it's nice to kind of have, you know, the pizza spotlight on us. Absolutely. So you always hear about Chicago style or New York style, but being from Detroit, I mean, we have so many different chains that offer the deep dish pizzas, but I gotta say, Danielle, that pizza we had the other day was probably the best pizza I think I've ever had. Wow. I... (laughs) I enjoyed it. I wouldn't say it was the best, but it could have been because I made my own and that might have been a mistake, but we'll discuss that in a bit. But can I just kick this segment off by talking about the seating? So when I got there first, and of course I requested a booth, very excited because there weren't a lot of people there, which was nice. It was very quiet, but I, it was kind of a tight squeeze in that booth. It was the kind of booth where, you know what I'm talking about, where the table is attached to the wall. Like that table is not moving. You can't adjust it. You're stuck. So when I kind of, you know, made my way into that booth, it was kind of a kind of snug. It was very snug. And I remember just talking to you not that long ago in one of our previous episodes <laughs> about how much I prefer booths, but this was a complete opposite experience. So safe to say it started off a little bit shaky, but um, we were looking at the menu and we did find a lot of things that were quite appetizing. Yeah, Buddy's has such a great menu. They have obviously pizza. They have pasta. Yep, they have pasta. They have sandwiches, burgers. They have a couple things of dessert. They have salads. I was really impressed by all those appetizers. It was a little difficult to pick, but I'm always a fan of, you know, the cheese sticks are usually a safe bet. And maybe some bread, you know, with some butter and a little bit of like like shredded cheese or not shredded cheese, but like shaped cheese. Yeah. Like pizza stuff, like a, like a pizza place stuff. Yeah. A pizzeria. (laughs) But but, yeah, the cheese sticks caught my eye too. I'm not going to lie. I was thinking about like um, a meatball platter, but we were already getting a heavy pizza. I didn't want meatballs. So I was excited about the cheese sticks until they arrived. 
See, I actually really enjoyed the cheese That was so surprising to me. They were, like, warm. The cheese was really melty. When you bite into a cheese stick and you kind of pull it away from your mouth and the cheese just kind of dips a little and it's still attached, you just got to, like, bite it and just rip it. That's my favorite kind of cheese stick. I agree with you on that. The cheese itself, the cheese pull, that whole action, it was great. Something about the breading was off. And you mentioned, too, as soon as um, our waitress came to the table and placed the cheese sticks down. You said, those look a little light. Like, they're not as crispy or tan as you expect. Yeah, they don't seem like they were deep fried as long as some other cheese sticks from other establishments, that's for sure. And they're all uniforms. Like, of course, you know they come from a bag. But something about the aftertaste for me was off. I loved that ranch, though. I did try to use as much ranch as I could, like, to kind of cover up the taste. I think I only had one and a half cheese sticks. Oh, Danielle, I know. Because I demolished <laughs> the rest of them. And yeah. as soon as you you weren't really feeling it and you said that you didn't really like them that much, that was a total green light for me to just go to town on them. And I think we had one left over by the end. Yeah, which you very gently boxed up with your leftover pizza. And the breadsticks, because that was another option we picked. Now, she said it was like cheesy bread or regular bread we could have. And we both figured, well, we already have cheese sticks. We already have pizza full of cheese. Let's just be a little tame and do regular breadsticks. Yeah, just a traditional like basket of just sticks of bread with a little bit of butter on it. I hated them. They tasted like Play-Doh to me. Like the way what? Play-Doh smells, that was like the way it tasted. I actually think that Buddy Bread was my favorite part of it. Were, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? So, yeah, it was the, the bread was nicely firm on the outside, super fluffy on the inside, just enough butter, not overwhelming. I think I actually ate the majority of those too. I think I just didn't go in with a big enough appetite. Can I make a confession to you of what I ate before I went to meet you? Yes. So I was hungry, but I didn't want to, you know, fill up on too much stuff. I'm like, well, if we're not meeting until... Well, it's 7.30-ish. You know, I'm, I'm hungry now. I opened up a can of low-sodium Spam. Spam? That's not where I thought we were going with this. I've never had Spam. I can make some for you right now. No, thank Just you. Just say the word. I don't think I would ever... I don't. I mean, it's meat, technically. Yeah, it is. I, <laughs> I got real defensive about it, yeah. Ah, uh, no. Thank you. I bet you if I were to make you a Spam sandwich, you probably wouldn't really know at first. Okay, well, I mean, we maybe we can visit that at, at another time. <laughs> but this part might gross you out, though. It wasn't a Spam sandwich that I ate. I just grilled the Spam up on a skillet and was just eating it like in slices. So I think I probably had a half a can of Spam before our dinner. So I don't think my appetite was there. And you look so disgusted with I, me. I honestly don't even know what to say next. <laughs> that sounds really gross, Danielle. But I'm the type of person, you know, if I'm going to go out for dinner and I know it's going to be something like like a pizza place. And we talked about this even with Olive Garden, right? You don't right? eat. You don't I eat. don't. Because just like at Olive Garden, like I'm getting bread or some kind of appetizer, a meal. I'm doing it all, right? And so I typically don't eat like that whole day beforehand because I'd rather enjoy my meal and not feel as full right away after eating maybe two pieces of bread. Okay, so no more spam for me before we go out. Got it. Message received. Yes. Well, you know, can I touch on a positive? The soft drinks. The pop was so good because I know on our date night episode, we talked right away. That pop was, something was missing. Yeah, I actually really liked it too. I really liked the way the... Ice was crushed, and the pop itself was pretty good. 
Um, I was actually kind of confused, though, because they had Coke products. They did have Verner's, which is a Michigan thing, but... I expected them to have Fago products, which are really big here in the Detroit area. Yeah, that would have been very on brand for them. We'll give Buddy some feedback. Hopefully they listen to this and get their act together. <laughs> but I was excited about the pizza selection, though, because before we went into it, we kind of figured, all right, we can either order a pre-made specialty pizza that they have on their menu or kind of create our own. And it wasn't something where we were making it for the other person, like our date night. We just kind of made what we thought we would enjoy. And I'm surprised that you didn't make your own. You went with the specialty pizza. Yeah, they have about 15 different specialties. And I feel like there's a really good variety. If I'm ordering pizza, I usually stick to the same thing. If I'm building my own, this might cause a stir, but I usually do pepperoni and pineapple. Okay. We're not having that conversation about whether pineapple belongs on pizza or not. Because it does. And I refuse to hear anything else. Can you know I don't like confrontation, so you win. <laughs> but <laughs> I actually went with the Detroiter. All of their specialties are named after local things, like streets, and there's like a Detroit Zoo, a Detroit Public TV. Attractions. Yeah, so just some pepperoni, brick cheese, and some Sicilian spices. And it was absolutely, like I said earlier, probably the best pizza I've ever had. It was very good, and I think what made it for me, because we did let each other try a piece of our pizza, you had like a sweet basil sauce, and I just went with the traditional sauce, and it, to me, made all the difference. It did taste a lot different. I liked your pizza, though. You got, wasn't it, had some bacon on it? Well, yeah, well, you were kind of shocked when I was telling the waitress, because we didn't share with each other what we were going to order, and you guessed, you're pretty close before I ordered like what you thought it was going to be, but when I said hamburger... Your face was a little bit surprised. So on mine, we, we both ordered a four-piece square, like nothing huge. We got to save room for cheese sticks and buddy bread that tastes like Play-Doh, but that's just my opinion. You mean the greatest bread in existence? Maybe I'll go again when my belly isn't full of Span. canned meat. Span. Yeah, <laughs> But um, yeah, so I picked hamburger, bacon, and they have something called old world pepperoni. And I don't know if it's local or if it's something that's all over, but... Basically, it's the tiny pepperonis that kind of curl up. So I ordered that. Yep, they put it on top. The other pepperoni they put under the cheese. Which I thought was weird. Um, So, of course, I was going to go with one on on top. And then I picked mushrooms and caramelized onions. I usually do like an olive or two, but because there is a lot of salty meat, I didn't want too many other salty toppings. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of olives, but all those other ingredients, I really enjoyed that little slice of pizza that you shared with me. Well, don't say little. I let you pick your own to make it seem like I just gave you a tiny piece. <laughs> well, I cut half of the yeah. pieces in half, so it was, a, it was a pretty tiny piece. <laughs> the thickness of the crust matters because I knew we were getting a deep dish, thick crust pizza. So I knew it could handle a lot of weight. But if we were somewhere where it was like a traditional, just round, thin, which I love a thin crust pizza. I love a regular traditional pizza, I guess. You can't go as heavy with the toppings because your pizza gets kind of saggy. Yep, it falls over. All the toppings aren't really glued to the cheese and they just fall off. I find myself picking the toppings out of the box and eating them. Which is such a guilty pleasure. All the extra cheese attached to that tiny little table. Such a treat. Oh, one more thing to mention. I ordered my pizza well done. And the reason I do that is because sometimes my pizza comes wet. I don't know if it's because of the toppings or if it's just the overall structure of the pizza itself. I can't stand a real doughy, chewy, soft pizza. 
And I'd rather it be a little burnt than just droopy. So that's why I went with the well done strategy. So if I'm going to the restaurant and sitting down, I typically don't do a well done because it's the perfect consistency. But I will usually order a well done if it's delivery or pickup and it's sitting in that box for a while because that's when it makes it kind of spongy to me. And I don't like spongy pizza. Spongy was exactly the word I was trying to look for. So yeah, we're on the same page. So I want to ask you, when we go back, do you think you'd have a different pizza building strategy or just go for one of the built-in specials they have honestly they have such a wide variety of the specialties like i said earlier that i think i'd probably just stick to those there were some ones that really stuck out to me and it was a hard decision but i went kind of basic like i said with just the pepperoni so overall how would you rate the pizza experience at buddy's i would go again i want to say that i would go again with you definitely yeah, I am a little surprised and disappointed that you didn't enjoy it as much the as I did. The pizza was good. The pizza was delicious. You don't have to defend it. <laughs> I 100% like understand where you're coming from, and I, and I get that. I felt like the experience was great. Other than the booth, like you mentioned, I thought the cheese sticks were great, the bread was great, the pizza was great, the drinks were great, and our waitress was absolutely fantastic. fantastic. She got a really great tip. She was one of the best waitresses I think I've had in a while, and... You know, that, that's not really saying a whole lot because of the pandemic and we weren't really going out. But in recent memory, she was really great. Very pleasant. And she did not judge us at all with all the cheese we were ordering in the beginning. She even made a comment like, listen, I love cheese too. And that really kind of made me feel safe in that super tight booth. Yeah, she was one of our people. As you know, I love cheese. I cannot say it enough. Can I just kind of, can I just talk about the menu again? You can talk about whatever you want, Danielle. <laughs> okay. Um, pasta. When I was a kid, I used to love just a basic spaghetti and sauce at a pizza place. Like, I, I liked it. But as an adult, I don't really think of getting pasta at a pizza place. I think there are some exceptions where you go there for the pasta over the pizza. So my question for you is, would you ever consider getting pasta from a pizza place like that? I used to work at a pizza place. Oh, yeah, I remember. That was my first job for like six or seven years. They have their pastas, but they're not very good. Ooh, I if, love it. Really? <laughs> I love a pizza hut pasta. Wow. Right. All right. Actually, as I said earlier in the episode, I've only been to Buddy's before we went one time. I actually got the Buddy's pasta oh, the first time I went. Okay. I got the spaghetti and I added for a little bit of an extra charge, two or three meatballs, and they were delicious. So overall, I enjoyed the experience. I would go again because I'd probably want to try another location. Fair? Absolutely. We should go to the original location in Detroit. Yeah. Oh, and order the exact same thing. Or maybe not. <laughs> yeah, we can, get, we can maybe mix it up. Like cheese sticks. I want, I want to give those cheese sticks another try. I'm always down for some cheese sticks. And I think it's because they automatically, well, we automatically order ranch and marinara for them. But Buddy's had some of the best ranch I've had in years. I dipped my breadsticks in them i dip my cheese sticks in them i dip a little bit of my pizza in them i'm a huge pizza and ranch person and i think just a ranch person altogether. but i really liked it it was pretty tangy and you can tell they made it from scratch in house right away yeah it tasted really fresh so i'll give buddies high marks i don't want anyone to think i'm shitting on buddies i really think it was my fault for eating that half a can of spam i gotta say that's probably what what you know, didn't ruin it for you, but definitely didn't make it the experience you deserve. Um, the leftovers are great, though. I don't know how yours held up, but mine I were actually, pretty good. I actually stopped and gave my mom my leftovers. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, so I decided to stop. I gave her the whole box, so she got that last cheese stick and some of the bread and my two leftover pieces of pizza. <laughs> a true gentleman. What a great son.
All right, Danielle, so for our table talk topic, we're talking about a local true crime murder story. Obviously, we're not a true crime podcast, and we aren't trying to be because there's so many amazing podcasts out there who do a wonderful job telling these stories. It's something that Danielle and I are mutually interested in, and we know it's a popular genre right now, and a lot of our listeners will be equally as excited to hear these stories too. As with any discussion on crime, especially when covering things like murder, physical and mental abuse, and sexual assault, some of the content can be a little bit triggering or offensive to some listeners. We will be talking about some of these elements of crime today. We won't go into super detail, but if hearing about any of them may be triggering for you, please skip the rest of this episode and just join us next week when we get back to talking about something a little bit lighter. We're cool with that. I think we're more than cool with that. Yeah. So we just wanted to provide that disclaimer because we care about our listeners and we just want to make sure you know that some of what you're about to hear might be hard to hear. So listener discretion is advised. When I was choosing a case that I wanted to cover, I was thinking, do I go with a big story, something well-known like a John Bonet or a heavy hitter like that? Or do I maybe go with something not so well-known, maybe a cold case? Then when we're talking about the theme of our episode, obviously being Detroit, it immediately dawned on me that I should do a local story. The story I chose is one that I had actually heard vaguely about, but never really dug into it. And I found that there are a couple of books about the case. And aside from that, no other media has really covered it. None of the big true crime podcasts have actually done this story. And that was surprising for me because you were dropping little breadcrumbs and hints. And of course, I didn't want to know too much about it. So when you gave me a, a little taste, I was immediately like so intrigued. Absolutely. So after hours of research, this is truly one of the most fascinating and twisted murder cases out there. I'm going to tell you about the Michigan murders committed by an alleged serial killer dubbed the Ypsilanti Ripper and the original co-ed killer. Okay. All right. So my sources for this information I'm going to tell you about includes good old Wikipedia and Murderpedia. (laughs) (laughs) The December 2013 Investigation Discovery Channel episode of A Crime to Remember called A New Kind of Monster. Terror in Ypsilanti, John Norman Collins Unmasked by author Gregory Forner. A couple articles from 1968 and 69 published in the Ann Arbor News and Detroit News. A 50-year anniversary article published in 2019 in the Hall of Shame series by Fox 2 Detroit. I love a good Hall of of Shame. shame. So, Danielle, get cozy, and of course, feel free to jump in and ask questions. We'll see. I'm going to start all the way back in 1967, well before you and I grace this beautiful planet. The first known victim of this deranged killer was a 19-year-old Eastern Michigan University freshman named Mary Flesher. On July 9th, a couple of her neighbors reported that they saw Mary walking in the direction of her university apartment that evening. They reported to local authorities that they had seen a bluish-gray-colored Chevy pull up next to her as she walked along the side of the street, have a short verbal exchange with her, and then drive off. Mary continued walking in the direction of her apartment, and that would be the last time that she would be seen. She was reported missing the next morning when her roommate discovered that she hadn't returned home, and initially police brushed it off as another instance of a college student had gone out with friends and surely she'd return home soon. But like so many of these types of cases, a day went by, and then weeks, and police had no leads in her disappearance. That was until just almost one month later, 
when two 15-year-old boys were walking near an old abandoned farm just a few miles north of the university one morning. They heard a car door slam nearby and thought it was odd that somebody would be driving in that area, so they decided to go check it out. They saw a car drive off near a wooded area, and that's when they stumbled upon Mary's partially decomposed body. Ugh, I knew it, I knew it. Yep. When police arrived on the scene, they discovered that she had been severely beaten and stabbed repeatedly. One of her forearms was missing, as well as her feet. They were never recovered. Never? Never. Later on, when examining her body, a local pathologist concluded that she had been stabbed 30 times. Her body was in such bad shape that they had to rely on dental records. Back then, they just didn't have the DNA technology that we have today. Back at the scene where her body was discovered, there was a lot of debris, like cardboard boxes and empty bottles and cans. I found some pictures online from a webpage dedicated to this case in the Detroit News, and journalist Frank Witzel published in November 2018 called The Evidence Locker, The Michigan Murders. It had a bunch of pictures from the scene, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. It sounds like all that junk was there before the body was dumped. As I mentioned earlier, and that part of the abandoned farm... You know, it could have been just a dumping ground for old trash and things from local farmers in the area. The thing that stuck out to investigators, though, was the lack of blood where the body was found. Danielle, get this. Okay. They determined that her body had been moved not once, not twice, but likely three times since her body was originally placed in that area. Okay, that was my first thought. Whenever there's a lack of blood or gore, it's the body was moved. That wasn't the site of the murder. That was just the dumping location. But three? Three, three times. times? Investigators believe that initially her body had been placed in a pile of those bottles and cans in a more heavily wooded area. And they believe her killer returned to the scene and dragged her body about five feet into more of like an open field area out of the woods. And there it laid, exposed to the summer sun. And then... The morning that her body was found by those young boys, the killer went back and moved the body another about three feet. So, like, what was the time span for this when he moved the body a few times? Because that doesn't make any sense. Why would you go back just to move the body a few more feet? So investigators believe she had only been dead for about two or three days. Okay. But it sounds to me, it's almost like he wanted her to be found, and he kept moving her a little bit further out into the open field, maybe to be visible, but still, an abandoned farm. He wasn't coming back to, like, have sex with the corpse or anything. I didn't read anything like that, but that could be a possibility. That's where my mind went. I don't know. That's super gross, if that's the case. (sighs) All right, go ahead. I'm sorry I even thought about that. It's okay. He definitely had an obsession with Mary because that's what I just told you isn't even the worst and weirdest part of this case. Literally two days after the news broke that Mary's remains were found, a young man walked into a funeral home where Mary's body was located, being prepped for her funeral, and claimed to be a friend of the family's, wanting to see the body so that he could take a picture as a favor for the family. The girl working at the front desk of the funeral home said, obviously, no. And when I read his response that she later told the police, it sent shivers down my spine. All right, what is it? Lay it on me. (laughs) She said that he responded, quote, You mean, you can't just fix her up enough so I can just get one picture of her? After being told no again, he turned around and walked out of the funeral home without saying another word. When asked to describe the man, she said he was in his mid to late 20s, had dark hair, was carrying a camera, and she had looked out the window after he left and saw what kind of car he was driving. Do you want to guess the color and the make of car she described? Ooh, like a yellow Dodge something? 
No. <laughs> I'm, <sorry. laughs> I'm sure you gave the details earlier with the car, right? I oh, did. No, no. It was a bluish gray Chevy. Okay. The same description of the vehicle that neighbors saw approach Mary the night she was last seen, pulled up beside her when she was walking. Obviously, this was a shock to the community for something so heinous to happen. And little did authorities know, but this would be the first of a handful of terrible murders of co-eds in the Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor area over the next two years. So he was going back to back to those colleges because both U of M and Eastern Michigan University are in those towns. So he was like ping, ping, ping back and forth. Just for context for listeners who aren't familiar with the Ypsilanti or Ann Arbor, Michigan area, these cities are basically right next to each other. They're located in the southeast portion of the state, about 40 minutes west of Detroit. And both are college towns. You have the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, which is about a 15 minute drive west from Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti. Almost one year later, on the evening of June 30th, 1968, 20-year-old Eastern Michigan University art student Joan Schell was waiting at a bus stop, hoping to catch a bus to Ann Arbor to visit her boyfriend. Joan's roommate, Susan, tagged along with her to make sure she made it to the bus safe, and when they realized that she had missed the last bus out to Ann Arbor that evening, Joan decided that she was going to hitchhike. Now, Danielle, we've heard stories, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, obviously hitchhiking in the 70s and 80s, and this was the late 60s. I mean, that's how people got around, and a lot of these stories come from hitchhiking, yeah. and terrible things have happened. But right at that same time, a red and black Pontiac Bonneville, so a different make and model. No yellow Dodge. No yellow Dodge. Oh, okay. <laughs> With three young men inside pulled over to where the two women were standing and asked if they needed a ride. Susan later described the driver of the car as about 20 years old with short, dark hair that was parted to one side. They offered Joan a ride, and despite Susan's obvious concerns, Joan took the offer and let Susan know she would call her as soon as she got to her friends. She hopped in the car, and it drove off. So this girl got in a car with three men she had no idea who they were yep it seemed to susan that she didn't know who these men were okay. no and susan waited for joan's call to come but it never did and she reported her missing to police the following morning five days later a group of construction workers in ann arbor discovered joan's body partially decomposed and mutilated the scene was gruesome and somewhat reminiscent to investigators joan had been stabbed 25 times her throat had been slashed, and then for whatever reason, the killer twisted and tied her skirt around her neck. Okay. She'd also been raped. Ooh, yeah. Figured that one was coming. What's really odd about the condition of the body when it was found was that the lower half of the body, basically from her lower torso, was in really good condition considering she had been dead for almost a week. However, the upper portion of her body, including her head, her shoulders, and her chest, were in far more stages of decomposition. So in my research, um, I read a quote that said that the lower part of the body was placed in a naturally cool environment with the upper third of her body exposed to natural heat. And what I take away from that and what I would assume is that maybe the killer tried covering her up with like grass or dirt or leaves or some brush, but didn't cover up super well. And maybe the upper part of her body was still exposed. We have to remember that this was still in the middle of the summer. Yeah. So yeah. that might have been an explanation. But even investigators said that they weren't exactly sure, but are confident that she had only been in that exact location for less than a day. Which means, just like in the case of Mary Flesher, the killer returned to where she had placed the body initially, moved it shortly before she was discovered, and with all these similarities, police had a hunch it could have been the same perpetrator. Okay. Could there have been a serial killer? At this point, the only lead investigators had to go on 
was the kind of make and model of the vehicles that had been reported by witnesses, and they began searching for registered owners of these vehicles that matched those descriptions, checking against descriptions that had been given of the young men with dark hair, and then checking their alibis. Okay. They interviewed dozens of men, but came up empty. Not even two weeks after Joan's body was found and one year after Mary's, investigators made an announcement saying that all significant leads had been exhausted and they were reducing the number of investigators assigned to the case. But two months later, two witnesses came forward and said that they had seen Joan walking with a young man the evening that she disappeared. They said that they couldn't be sure, but they thought the man they saw her walking with was another EMU student named John Norman Collins, who lived right across the street from Joan near campus. He bore a striking similarity to the composite sketch that the police had created based on the prior witness descriptions. Police tracked him down to talk to him about his whereabouts that night, and he stated that he spent the entire weekend visiting his mother's home about 40 minutes away, and when asked if he knew his neighbor, he vehemently claimed that he didn't. Police didn't bother to check on his alibi and felt that he was being honest enough, so they moved on, and yet again, the case stalled out. Seven months went by, and then in the spring of 1969, murders of the young women in the area started back up again. In the span of just a few months, there were four more. Okay, so what I'm gathering is he goes dormant during the fall and winter. There's no weird murders, and then spring-summer starts again, and now all these women are being found all over these cities. It definitely seems that way. And you bring up a really good point. We have to remember that these are happening in college towns. And so whoever the killer is, there's been descriptions that he's young in his early 20s. So he's probably a student. And what's not happening during the summer is school. So the summer is his prime time. So okay. you bring up a really good point. On March 20th, a 23-year-old U of M Ann Arbor law student named Jane Louise Mixer disappeared. She had recently got engaged to an economics professor at the university, and they planned to move to New York together. She was excited to break the news to her family back in her hometown on the west side of the state and posted a bulletin on the board on campus trying to seek a ride back home. Unfortunately, she would never make it, and the next day her body was discovered in a cemetery about 10 miles east of campus. She laid on top of a grave, fully clothed, with her yellow raincoat draped over her and a copy of the novel Catch-22 laying next to her. She had been shot twice with a 22 caliber pistol and choked with a pair of stockings. Her autopsy concluded that she had died somewhere around 3 a.m. on March 21st, that previous day, and that she had not been killed in the location where her body had been found. And despite these significant differences in her killing compared to the two previous murders, there were just enough similarities to lead investigators to tie her murder with the murders of both Mary and Joan. Okay, Danielle, so this particular murder took me down a rabbit hole I didn't expect, and I have some information I feel like I need to share with you because it just wouldn't be right for me not to break it down. According to the Detroit Free Press publication I referenced earlier, back in 2004, a man named Gary Lederman was identified and linked to the evidence that had been recovered from the Jane Louise Mixer case, the last murder I just told you about, and subsequently went to trial where this evidence was presented. The jury only deliberated for three hours, and Gary was convicted of first-degree murder and the killing of Jane, and began serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Now, how old was this fucking creep when they actually like convicted him? Well, he didn't do it. He was wrongly convicted, and that's what I'm about to tell you. So he's not a fucking creep. <laughs> All right. Well. <laughs> so I don't know if that. I don't know. Um. It just. It just keep going then. My mistake. I'm sorry. No. No. Much. Bad. Much like that yellow dodge. I really. I'm missing the mark here. According to Gary'sInnocent.org, a few years prior to his conviction, 
Gary Lederman participated in some sort of three-month drug rehabilitation program for first-time offenders that would allow him to avoid a felony conviction, and even though he was not going to be convicted, he willingly submitted a swab anyway, and that ended up at that same laboratory at the same time that Jane's evidence was there regarding her case, and that of a man of John Rules, who had also been convicted of killing his mother. They were all there being tested at the same time. A drop of blood found on Jane's hand that was collected and stored as evidence matched rules. So Danielle, get this. That man would have only been four years old in 1969. So obviously there was a huge mistake. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, and somehow the DNA from these two men contaminated the evidence from Jane's case. But despite all that, knowing that, and Gary's lawyers appealing his conviction every chance they got, Gary was never granted a new trial. Never? Never. Did he die in prison? He did. He continued to spend the next 17 years behind bars and passed away just a few years ago in July 2019 at the age of 74. All right. This whole case has been so twisted so far, and it continues with twists and turns. So this is where we go back to our original timeline, the spring of 1969. On March 25th, just four days after the discovery of Jane's body, a man who was out surveying some land discovered the corpse of a 16-year-old Romulus High School student, Marilyn Skelton, behind a vacant house just a few hundred yards from where Joan's body was found. Joan was the second victim I told you about, who had been discovered about eight months before. Investigators were absolutely shook to their core when they arrived at the crime scene. One officer was reported to have said that injuries to Marilyn were the worst he had seen in his 30-year career. She had been severely beaten with a blunt object, so badly her skull was crushed, and she was unrecognizable. She was found with marks on her chest and shoulders that led examiners to believe that she had been restrained, whipped, and deep lacerations were caused all over her body. Apparently, the killer also ripped off a piece of her shirt and stuffed it down her throat so that nobody could hear her screams. I read a lot more about this absolutely disgusting murder and terrible things that were done to her, but the detail was honestly incredibly difficult to stomach and there's no way I'm going to repeat those things and they don't do the story any justice. Blood found at the scene led investigators to believe that she had been tortured and killed in the same location where her body was eventually found. According to the autopsy, she had only been dead for about 24 hours. The community was understandably scared and getting really frustrated with the progress of the case and at this point there were just no solid leads. The only thing that they felt sure of is that some, if not all, of these cases were linked to the same killer. Each victim was a young, white brunette, and in each case they were found with a piece of clothing tied around their neck. And with mounting pressure from the community, a task force was created with upwards of 20 investigators from different agencies in Southeast Michigan, and were all focused on these cases full-time. There was a serial killer in our midst. So how many women are we talking about now where they finally decided, let's do something about it? So at this point, there's been four women okay. that have been killed. Over the course of two and a half years? About two years, okay. yeah. The following month on the evening of April 15th, a 13-year-old middle school student from Ypsilanti named Dawn Louise Basom had been visiting a friend's house about a mile from her home. She was walking home when neighbors reported seeing her around 7.30 walking alone near some railroad tracks. That was the last confirmed sighting of Dawn, and her body was found early the next morning on the side of a quiet, desolate road in Ypsilanti. She had been stabbed excessively and strangled with some sort of electrical cord. Much like the previous victim, a piece of cloth was stuffed down her throat during her torture. Detectives located an abandoned farmhouse about 100 yards from where Dawn's body was dumped. A different abandoned farmhouse. Okay. Evidence inside the basement, including blood stains, led investigators to believe that she was murdered there and then taken to the spot that few hundred yards away and dumped. 
A few weeks later, an officer who was at the farmhouse doing a routine checkup on the crime scene noticed new evidence that was not there the first time that investigators combed through it. The killer had returned at some point and left a piece of Dawn's clothes, as well as the last victim, to Marianne Skelton, one of her earrings. This was the first time that multiple of the murders were for sure linked, and it was like the killer was trying to taunt investigators. But it gets weirder. About a month later, the farmhouse burned to the ground. Apparently, five individual stem-cut lilacs were placed on the ground outside near the driveway, lined up visible to investigators arriving to the scene. And many people believe that those five lilacs represent the victims of the Michigan murderer. Danielle, you know I'm not very good at math. But so far, including the murder of Jane Louise Mixer, whose death had some pretty significant differences and led to that other man's conviction decades later, that would be five young women who have been killed. So I guess for me, could it be that Jane was one of the victims and this was a way for the killer to signal that he had done them all? Maybe he only committed a few of them but was trying to take credit? Or was this some gross stunt played out by somebody who had read about the murders and just wanted to taunt police? What do you think? I think it's the latter. I think it's someone trying to play a joke on um, the investigators. Yeah, it just seems really out of character for this type of killer who went about things in such a way that wasn't so obvious, but like he would keep going back. And like Hmm. the first, like we talked about, he kept like dragging her body a little bit more. Yeah. Right. So to go and do something so bold like that seems out of place to me. Less than two months after the murder of Dawn, on June 9th, three teenage boys stumbled upon the body of another victim, 20-year-old University of Michigan graduate student Alice Callum. She had disappeared the previous day before she had last been seen walking home after attending a party. Reports say that there was evidence that she was murdered in a nearby gravel pit and then dumped. Her body was found near yet another abandoned farmhouse. She apparently loves farmhouses. With stab wounds, her throat was slashed, and she had suffered a gunshot wound to the head. She was now the second victim in three months who had been killed involving a gun, leading investigators to again wonder this new victim, along with Jane Louise Mixer, might have been killed by the so-called co-ed killer, but could have been another serial killer in the area. The community, especially the women, were growing more and more fearful and outraged at what they felt was incompetence of investigators, but there was just hardly any evidence that pointed anywhere. Every lead they had just dried up so quickly almost as quickly as it came. 18-year-old Karen Bynaman, another Eastern Michigan University student, was last seen on June 23rd around 12 p.m. leaving a downtown Nipsilani wig shop. When she didn't return to her dorm by curfew that night, her roommate contacted police to report her missing. Three days later, her nude, beaten, and chemically burned body was discovered in a ravine near the Huron River just north of Ypsilanti. And like many of her previous victims, a piece of cloth was stuffed down her throat to muffle any cries for help. And so far, I haven't gone into any particular details involving the sexual-related abuse of these women. Like I said earlier, some of it was especially heinous and not necessary to the story to discuss. I appreciate you leaving that out. Yeah. And upon examining Karen's body, though, examiners found a piece of evidence that I do want to tell you about because it would later become a very, very, very key piece in this investigation. So examiners found on the fabric of the underwear that she had been wearing quite a few pieces of cut hair, and then it was stuffed in an area. Okay. The hairs did not match Karen's, and they were not wig hairs either. We'll circle back to this evidence in just a little bit. The mounting pressure from the public was intense, and with little to go on, investigators decided to get creative. 
Since the killer had returned to some of the sites where he dumped the bodies and moved them, they went out on a limb and hoped that he would do the same this time if he thought the body hadn't been located yet. The police actually ordered a news blackout, banning any media from reporting on the discovery of Karen's body, and officers placed a mannequin where the body had been found, and then hid nearby behind some trees in the dark of night and waited. Around 2 a.m., in the middle of a rainstorm, an individual somehow unknowingly slipped by officers and approached her body. When he realized it was a dummy, he took off sprinting from the scene, and it was only then that an officer noticed him in the area, radioed to his team, but because of the heavy rain, it wasn't able to go through, and he wasn't able to communicate what was happening. This was a devastating result for police. They almost had their guy, but he got away. That's infuriating to me. Like, you literally had one job to do. I bet you they were sleeping, they were joking around, they, they weren't do, doing what they needed to do, and that infuriates me. Yeah, well, it infuriated the public, too, because at this point, they were just, like, over it. I, I read that, you know, women were going out and buying, like, mace, and they, a lot of them were cutting their hair or dyeing their hair. It was just out of control, and the public felt like they weren't doing their job. You're absolutely right. Luckily for them, though, a huge clue that would send this case into a whole new direction was waiting for them back at that wig shop where Karen was last seen. When detectives interviewed an employee who was on shift at the time, they learned that she mentioned to the employee that she had accepted a ride from a mysterious man on a motorcycle who was parked out in front of the shop. Reports state that Karen said to the shop worker, quote, I've got to either be the bravest or the dumbest girl alive because I just accepted a ride from this guy. And then she left the shop, hopped on the back of the motorcycle, and her and the man left the area. After hearing the description of the motorcycle and the man who Karen had accepted the ride from, another local officer had a hunch that the man she was referring to was John Norman Collins. That name might sound familiar to you because earlier, this was the same Eastern Michigan University student who was identified as a person of interest after the murder of his neighbor, Joan Schnell. The officer remembered seeing Collins riding on his motorcycle around campus that same day that Karen went missing. Upon further investigation into Collins, police learned that on several occasions he had been describing in detail some of the murders to his co-workers and his friends. Wait a minute, wait, I'm sorry, wait a minute. At no point did his co-workers or friends turn him in, question him about it, anything? Nothing, no, nothing about that sounded strange to them. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I guess he would just tell people that he got the information from his uncle, who was a police officer. But when his uncle was approached with this claim, he denied ever giving him any of that information. But you're absolutely right. If somebody is like describing this stuff, and first of all, it's at work, so it's not the place to be no. doing that. And it didn't sound like he was very close with any of these coworkers. But yeah, it's just really creepy. That should have definitely oh, sent off yeah, some Yeah, you don't want to work flags. with me. I'm going to be reporting on you right away. Right. <laughs> As investigators dug deeper into Collins' background, they learned that he had very close links with most of the women who were killed. In fact, two of the women he lived directly across the street from. The first victim, he worked right across the hall from where she worked. And he dated a girl who lived just across the street from the home of Don Basom. And... Collins could have easily become acquaintances due to his proximity and his consistent visits. Collins was positively identified in a police lineup as the man who Karen got a ride from after visiting that wig shop the day of her murder. Collins refused a polygraph test, and as investigators continued to dig into his whereabouts that day, they learned that he had been staying with his uncle, a state police sergeant, who was out of town on vacation with his family. With the help of the sergeant, investigators did a search of the home, and in the basement found bloodstains and hair clippings. Oh god, the hair clippings. Yes, you know exactly where this is going. 
The blood was identified as some of the same blood as Karen's, and the hair clippings? Get this. Right before they went on vacation, the mom cut their young son's hair. It was his hair. Okay. This evidence, along with the other circumstantial evidence collected, was the connection that investigators needed to finally arrest John Norman Collins and charge him for murder on July 31st, 1969. The reign of terror that he brought onto the communities of Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor was finally over. On August 19, 1970, after two weeks of trial and deliberation, a jury unanimously found John Norman Collins guilty of first-degree murder. As a result, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. When he was asked by the judge before his sentencing if he wanted to address the court, he said, I have two things to say. I think the jury conscientiously tried to give me a fair trial. The jury did not take its task lightly, but I think things were blown out of proportion. The circumstances surrounding this case prevented me from getting a fair trial. It was a travesty of justice that took place in this courtroom. I hope someday it will be corrected. Second, I never knew a girl named Karen Bynaman. I never had a conversation with her. I never took her to a wig shop. I never took her to my uncle's home. I never took her life. His slew of lawyers have appealed his conviction multiple times and each request was denied. Collins remains in prison, serving out his life sentence at the Marquette Branch Prison up in the Upper Peninsula. And at the time of this recording, he's 74 years old. Although he was convicted for Karen Bynum's murder, it's widely alleged that the other six killings I just told you about were carried out by John Norman Collins. The fact that I had no idea about the story blows my mind. Because we have the Oakland County child killer. Like, that's a big one. We have some local stories that have been on national news. We still have some missing persons stories that have not been solved, but we've been aware of. Why did I not hear anything about this? I thought the exact same thing. I mean, this is just crazy to hear. And this is the type of thing, like, yes, like all of this is gross and tragic that happened. But this is the type of story that I feel like matches like a Ted Bundy level. And with the twists and going back and like at the the farm. The hair just grossed me out. And the cloth. In my mind, I was thinking the cloth were the victim's like panties, their underwear. That's what I was thinking of. Like when you say like the cloth mist, everything was so disgusting. And the fact that he got away multiple times, if you think about it, because they interviewed him early on with Joan, right? The second girl. Yep. And then with the dummy in the field when he, they caught him, but he ran away. Like that, honestly. Oh. Well, even after the first murder, remember, those boys walked up to that area because they heard that car door slam. He had, and then saw his car pulling away. He had, just missed getting caught for that first murder and then almost got caught again and it took that long for them to make this connection even though he was in the area he had that close proximity to these victims he fit the description but i just feel like police work back then was so different than it is now the forensics were totally different and i feel like for the most part they didn't really use interrogation tactics like they do now and like when you said white male in his mid-20s seemed nice enough they probably just figured oh harmless But, I mean, the fact that he was in such close proximity to those victims, it really makes you wonder. It really does. So, do you think somebody could get away with these same crimes this many years later? Yes, and I think that people (laughs) still are. It's just, um, yeah, I don't want to think about it. It creeps me out. But, yeah, there has to be. There's always someone who is one step ahead of authorities. 
I know sometimes I think they're smarter than they are, and that might be the case, but I think some of these serial killers are geniuses in a way. And in, in I'm not giving them any credit, but you have to be kind of one step ahead to commit multiple murders. People like Ted Bundy and, and other killers, and it's been widely reported that, you know, the, their IQs are higher and, you know, they're just smarter than the average person. And unfortunately, they're using all of those smarts for the wrong reasons. But I'm curious, did they say what this guy was majoring in? <laughs> I just want to see, like, like, what kind of people to stay away from. You know, it's funny you ask that, because that actually did come up in my research. He was going to school, and I think he was in his don't, final final year. Don't say doctor. Not a doctor. Okay. He was going to be a teacher. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Fucking gross. Okay. Yep. He he was majoring in education, from what I read. Early ed, high school. Like, what are we? What are we thinking? Are we talking like preschoolers, kindergarten, or? Um, it doesn't really say. It just oh, says fine. education. Okay, cool. So a teacher, perfect. Love to see it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty gross when you think about it that these people were in society and yeah, some of them might still be. But oh, I believe they are. Thankfully, we've had a lot of advances in you know technology and police work that a lot of this stuff we don't hear about anymore. But I mean, it still happens, and it's. You know, it's just something to just have awareness and don't accept rides from people you don't know and be a little bit cautious. Thank you for that story. I was disgusted, but also very interested. So good job for that. Um, I I didn't think it was going to be that. uh, And you left a lot of details out. A lot. My mind was kind of filling in the blanks. So I'm glad you left some of the heavier stuff. I mean, it was all pretty heavy. Yeah, I think I alluded to a lot without going into detail. Yeah, so good. Don't want to through the table like Chris Farley. <laughs> it's literally not even like buckled in. Go ahead. Okay. It's held up good. Yeah. So I love the variety of this podcast and the different things that we're talking about. And we're going to continue to bring different table topics to the show so that our listeners can have that wide variety of things to enjoy. Yeah. And if you guys have any ideas or suggestions for future table talk conversations, please feel free to let us know on any of our social media handles. You can find us over on Twitter at Friends Who Feast and also over on Instagram and Facebook at Friends Who Feast Pod. Absolutely. Join the conversation there. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, rate, subscribe, let us know how we're doing. That goes a long way. And we thank you. And we appreciate you. Well, until next time, I'm Danielle. And I'm Christopher. And we're the Friends Who Feast. Bye. 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 Thank you.